everybody, and welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and I'm glad you're going to be with me today. Today, we have our point leader, Bobby Harrington, along with Elisa Childers, who is the host of the Elisa Childers Podcast, which I'm a big fan of myself. And they're going to be talking to us today about the intellectual cost of discipleship or discipleship of the mind. With things like progressive Christianity, cultural Christianity, it's never been more important to be strong and centered in our thinking about God and about God's Word. It's super easy to get pulled away from the truth and to rely more on our thoughts and feelings about God's Word rather than the truth of God's Word. And I'm speaking about that from experience, as I was someone who was pulled away and then pulled back into historic Christianity. But I'm not the one being featured on this episode, so I'm going to stop talking about myself. If you want to hear more about my story, I will give you direction at the end of this episode of where you can find that. I also want to remind you that we do have a podcast promo going on where you can purchase tickets to the National Disciple Making Forum November 4th and 5th of this year for 50% off. All you got to do is enter podcast, all lowercase, in the promo code box when you're buying your ticket from discipleship.org. Okay, I'm going to stop rambling. This is Bobby here and Elisa Childers. My name is Bobby Harrington, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. I have the privilege of interviewing my friend, Elisa Childers, and uh, we're going to talk about something that's really important, and that's the cost of discipleship of the mind uh, in disciple-making. So with me is Elisa Childers, and uh, over the last several years, uh, she has really developed a super important ministry to the broader church. And uh, it began with her own experience with uh, progressive Christianity, which then she experienced it. She had to work it through. She was able to do that with the help of several people, especially the apologist Norman Geisler, and then uh, she first started writing. She she did a very popular blog that went out. And I last time I saw it, and I might have this number wrong, but it looked like it was shared by like 150,000 people. And uh, it was on five signs your church might be heading toward progressive Christianity. Since that time, she has uh, uh, become a podcaster, and her podcasts have really been effective. And they're great podcasts, by the way. I highly recommend everybody listen to them and sign up because not only does Elisa have a unique gift, which I'm going to describe in just a second, but she gets great guests on her podcast. So what she has is a very unique set of um character traits and insights and experiences. Her book, Another Gospel, which is a a description of progressive Christianity, why Orthodox biblical Christianity is the best alternative and where it goes wrong. And she tells it as a narrative. I mean, it's a fantastic book that I recommend to everybody. But what the podcast, the book, and and everything that I see from Elisa shows is a combination of three things. The first is we're in a cultural moment in North America because of the influence of postmodernism and the breakdown 
of Judeo-Christian values where there is a real dearth of substantive direction for people through the doctrinal and philosophical landmines. And God's really gifted Elisa with a mind for that. She also is blessed with a very astute mind. And then thirdly, she's been given a creativity where she is always able to say what needs to be said, but do it with grace and poise and with an artistry as well, especially in her writings. So I know that's a lot, Elisa, but uh, welcome. Thank you for being with us. And um, maybe just give us a quick update, if you would, on what you're covering recently in your podcast as we begin. Well, Bobby, always great to be with you. I don't even know what to say after that introduction. That was so kind, and uh, what a what a kind introduction. Goodness. Um, so yeah, great to be with you as always. So late. Let's see. Lately on the podcast, you know, I always try to cover topics that I think are going to help Christians who are maybe they've gone to church or they picked so, up yeah. a book and there was something that gave them a red flag but they don't necessarily know how to explain what it is or to identify it or to articulate it so every one of my podcasts I try to maybe give some language and give some substantive explanations as to you know why they might be thinking a certain thing so um, my most recent podcast episode was with a girl named Elizabeth Urbanowicz and she does the foundation worldview curriculum for elementary school age and she's amazing just phenomenal we talked about how to relate some of these ideas to your kids. Uh, I've uh, talked with, uh, gosh, who have I talked with lately? Um, uh, Ken Samples on uh, St. Augustine. This this was a podcast I'd been wanting to do for a long time because in all the progressive Christian literature that I read, in so much of it, they really don't like St. Augustine and they just, they, they blame him for so many things. And so uh, Ken Samples is an Augustine expert. We talked about original sin and Augustine and I also do little short videos from time to time. So most recently, I did a little bit of analysis on this really popular podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, I've really enjoyed listening to that podcast. But as I was listening, there was just a couple of red flags that I thought, maybe I can help identify these things and help Christians to think through this as they listen through to things like that. So I just, it's really fun. It's actually my favorite thing to do over speaking or over writing books is just making uh, online content on YouTube. This is my favorite thing to do. Wow, that's great. Well, um, and God's uh, put his hand of favor on what you're doing. Uh, so in religion, as you and I were talking just before things began, uh, your uh, podcasts are uh, anywhere from, I think what you were saying, uh, the t- top 25 to top 60 uh, of 150 plus thousand. That's, yeah, that's my understanding that there's over 155,000 podcasts in that category. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm so blessed because mine hovers around in that area, just, you know, anywhere from 20 to 60 and uh, has been at least for the, for the last couple of months. And so really grateful. It just means there's people who are listening and that, that just, that, that's great. It just, I'm so blessed and so thankful to God for his faithfulness and all of that. Oh, that's great. Well, we are too. And and again, uh, the book that Elisa's published has done extremely well because it's uh, addressing a need. And I would say if you are listening or you're watching 
and you're thinking about the discipleship of the mind today, that that's got to be a must read uh, as you're working with people and trying to understand what's going on. Let's, uh, so where I want to go is uh, with the, the cost of discipleship of the mind. And what I mean by that, Elisa, is that we have to pay the price for good thinking in the church and in our lives as Christians. And most churches and most Christians haven't been doing that, and now we're paying the price. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we dive into how do we honor God in this cultural moment with the discipleship of our minds, and uh, for those of us with children, the discipleship of the minds of our children or grandchildren, before we get into that, can you describe succinctly progressive Christianity for us? Yes, and I'm I'm getting I'm hopefully as time goes on I get better at being more succinct because it's very hard to define. Yeah, by uh, the way, I wasn't thinking that you weren't good at being succinct. Uh because Oh no, no. I, <laughs> no, I didn't take it that way. It's just oh, I'm, okay, I'm not sure I can be succinct. I'll try. Because here's the thing, the, the problem with progressive Christianity is that by nature it's hard to define because it's not really defined by what you believe. So historically, Christians have been creedal people. We have a long history going back to early in the first century of creeds uniting us as far as us being on the same page about what we believe. And uh, that now that doesn't mean that we just check some intellectual boxes and we're Christians. But you know, you have to the, all the things the martyrs lived and died for are based on things they believe about who God is and who Jesus is and what happened. And so progressive Christianity just doesn't really work that way. So what I've discovered, though, and I think the the most succinct way that I can uh, identify it is that it's a movement of Christians that are largely coming out of the evangelical church that are rethinking, redefining, and often rejecting core historic doctrines of the Christian faith, but still calling it Christian. And so it's, uh, like I said, it's not really creedal in the sense that you have to affirm certain beliefs to be a progressive Christian. But as I researched the movement and read their books and listened to their podcast, what I did discover is that they're not as united in what they affirm as they are in what they deny. So it's it's real there's a lot of unity around the the historic doctrines that they would deny things like uh, substitutionary atonement the bible being the word of god uh things like that. So so that's kind of where you're going to see more of the succinct kind of this is what this movement is is more in what it denies. So it's almost uh an impulse of rejection, like of reject of rejecting the essentials and the core things of God, um, correct? Yeah, I, I I think it's fair to say that. Now, obviously, progressive Christians, if they heard us say that, they're going to say, "Well, no, we're not rejecting." core historic doctrines because they don't consider those things to be core historic doctrines and progressive Christianity uh, I've seen very often all doctrines are sort of put on the same level so you can you can affirm the resurrection or not you can affirm predestination you know in a certain sense or not uh, you can embrace the continuation of the gifts of the spirit or not but there's no diff like the resurrection is like the same it's all on the same level so and so flat, um, flat canon of flat yeah it's just sort of any you don't have to uh put anything as more important than something else that's good okay um why is it 
that it has become so popular? Well, I think it's become very popular for uh, lots of reasons. I think, number one, uh, considering that for the most part, progressive Christians are ex-evangelicals, I think that there are reasons of maybe things that have happened in the church environments they grew up in that caused them to want to reject that, whether it be maybe uh, walking through some kind of spiritual abuse, witnessing hypocrisy, maybe growing up in a very hyper-legalistic, fundamentalist type of situation. Um, they, they can be walking away from things like that. Um, and then on the other side, I think it's very attractive because the cultural pressure particularly on issues like sexuality, the the pressure to capitulate to culture on these things is so immense, especially among young people who are not just being told, hey, if you hold to a biblical sexual ethic, you're a bigot or you're hateful. They're actually being told, you're hurting people, you're harming people, you're causing people to commit suicide. So the pressure, I'm sure that's very confusing too. So to, to think, oh, I can still be a Christian and yet change my view of sexuality. I think things like that are very and let's just face it. I mean, when you look on on the surface of what progressive Christians generally are all about, their beliefs, at least regarding regarding morality, justice, sexuality, that's all going to be right in line with where culture is going. I mean, there's there's no difference between what progressive Christians are saying and what the culture, the secular culture, is saying on those things. So I can see why that would be attractive as well, because then you feel like, well, I'm not this weirdo over here that's saying these different things I can I can kind of sound like I'm not crazy and yet I can still say yay but I'm I'm a Christian and that and that's cool so I think there's there's probably a, a lot of different dynamics like that going on uh, that's good so Elisa one of the things that we describe is the ditch to the left which is very attractive right now and it's the progressive ditch where uh, as you've described people are giving up on some pretty core uh, and I would argue essential doctrines uh, on on their journey into progressivism. The other ditch is to the right, which much of evangelicalism in North America was caught up in, uh, especially over the last 200 years, where there was a traditionalism and a legalism and a particularity where um, people overstated things. And if you could talk a little bit, let me let me suggest to you one of the ways I understand it. The attractiveness of progressivism is that it gives you a way to abandon the, the weirdness, the rigidity, and the legalism of a lot of historic, even fundamentalism. Uh, what do you think about that? And, and let's just talk about those on the right for, for a few minutes. Yeah, I think a good case can be made that, you know, when we saw the the uh, fundamentalist and, you know, that whole modernist fundamentalist issue going on in the late 1800s with the rise of theological liberalism, um, I, I think that this can get overstated in some of the things I've read, but there certainly is an aspect to that where conservative Christians isolated themselves off. They they didn't continue to participate. And this is when, you know, of course, the Scopes monkey trial, things like this were going on. And instead of um, providing a robust defense of Christianity in the midst of all of that, we kind of isolated ourselves off and didn't, and no longer participated really in the, in the, 
public square as far as bringing uh, ideas. And so I think we've been at a bit of a, we, we, we've, we're coming from behind on that because we just haven't had that in our history in the last, you know, like you said, couple hundred years. I think that's radically improving. I think that there, there have been some uh, amazing scholarly works done that are more in the defense of the historic Christian faith, but largely speaking for the last couple hundred years, scholarship's been dominated. Uh, biblical scholarship, you know, has been dominated by uh, theological liberal, theologically liberal scholars. And so this has been what's informing people's ideas. And so um, I, I'm glad to see that there are some really good scholars coming to kind of push against some of the ideas of people like Bart Ehrman and, and people like that. But, um, but yeah, I think there was a deficit left and I think because of that, also if we look at the history of even how that all intersected with some of the great revivals, which you yeah. know, of course, wonderful fruit came from those revivals. I'm certainly not bashing the revivals, but what it did also was it 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 gave the picture that the emotional experience was was more important than the thinking mind and sort of pit those two things against each other whether people intended to do that or not i think that's that's what was caught by a lot of christians and so of course this is where we see the rise of things like mormonism in that deficit where christians weren't answering cultish type of uh, movements could come in and sort of sweep up Christians who had not really engaged their intellects uh, into what they they thought. And, and even today, Bobby, when I go and I speak at different churches, these are wonderful Christian people, not criticizing them as Christians, but there is so often an obstacle that I have to overcome. And it's this idea that, oh, if we engage our intellect too much, that's somehow going to stifle faith, or that's going to stifle our, our connection with the Holy Spirit, or that's actually, um, we're trying to do the job or the work of the Holy Spirit instead of letting him do that. Um, but the problem with that type of mentality is that if you don't engage your intellect, then you can just assign whatever your personal subjective preferences are to the Holy Spirit. Yes. So how do you know what a work of the Holy Spirit is? You have to engage your intellect to compare that with scripture, test it in reality, because um, God, and, and I know we're going to get into this, but as Christians, we're actually commanded to engage our minds. And so I th I'd yeah. love to see, especially in the evangelical uh, stream, Christians become more excited about engaging their minds. Yes. No, I, I think that that's great. And I totally agree with you. So um, let's just name it because I think it's helpful to name it to begin with. Several years ago, David Wells wrote a book uh, called the, the Tragedy of the Evangelical Mind. Basically, the tragedy is there isn't one because too often it was more pragmatics. Uh, it was like what works. And I will be candid with you as a guy who continues to serve as a lead pastor and who is developing networks with other lead pastors. There is so much pressure to do what works and what's pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And uh, people come into church with an expectation you're going to make it inspirational and encouraging. And uh, now don't get too intellectual there. And so what happens is uh, we have churches all over the land uh, that are that are really shallow intellectually. Yeah. And uh, so I want to uh, start by asking you, what do we... Where, Let's, let's talk about the church first. If I gave you a magic wand 
and God gave you the miraculous ability to direct every church in the country to start addressing this, what would you do? Oh my goodness. That's amazing. Um, well, it would be it would be across the board. It would be a, re, a rehaul. I'd rehaul the whole thing, uh, starting with the worship songs that we sing. Um, yes. what, I would I would have a much um, stricter standard on what lyrics we're actually singing when we're saying that we're worshiping God, because I think so often. Uh, and listen, I'm, I've been a worship leader for a long time. It's very difficult to please everyone. So I have so much grace for worship leaders. So when I say this, this isn't, you know, anything that I, th- I, I would expect people to just magically change overnight. Some of these things take time. It, it takes a lot of work. But, um, you know, I think so often we can default into worshiping how we feel when we worship. Yeah. And I think that's a really scary place to be. So I would start with, you know, across the board with from women's ministry to everything, um, there being, uh, it's not about an emotional encounter. That's just not what it's about. Sometimes you get those and that's great, but we need to be prepared to serve God faithfully when we don't get the emotional encounter. And um, as a kind of flaky emotional artist myself, that was one of the hardest things I had to get my head around because for my whole life, Bobby, I I would have these really deep emotional encounters with God. And that was to me proof that he existed. But then when I really examined that with intellectual honesty and I listened to stories of other people who experienced exactly what I would describe that I experienced in a worship service, but they're experiencing it at a Rolling Stones concert or listening to a Beatles record, um, I had to be intellectually honest about that and say, okay, well, who judges between us to who had the real experience? And and again, like I sort of hinted at earlier, the only way to, to really do that that is to take the experience and measure it against what scripture says. And if you're feeling emotional about a truth about who God is that's found in scripture, that's great. Enjoy that. But if you're creating an emotional experience, but it's not focused or fixed on something that's objectively true about God, then it's just an emotional experience. And, and And I can't tell you, I've talked to people in the new age who've come out of the new age about some of the experiences they would have looking at a tree and, and even weeping because of the idea that this tree was so deeply connected with creation and that that there was this divine essence in the tree. And they're having this transcendent experience with this tree, but it's not true. Yeah. So I think as Christians, we need to, to really overhaul that. So I would start with worship. Um, with all of the teaching classes, I would, if, I mean, if I had a magic wand to do whatever I wanted. That's, that's what I would I'm giving have, you a hypothetical magic wand. Yeah, well, in this magic wand, all of the teaching on Sunday morning would be expositional teaching through the Bible. Like expositional or expository? Ex, oh, expository, sorry, expository. Okay. Yeah. And and it, preaching straight through the Bible. Because when you're teaching through the Bible, you can't skip parts that you would want to skip if you weren't doing that. Yeah. Um, and then in the equipping classes, I would have uh, apologetics and theology going all the time. There would be classes that are building just a basic systematic theology and building apologetics. And here's what's going to happen if you do that. You're going to lose a whole lot of members. But then you're going to start attracting members that want the meat. And I think that churches would grow if, if more churches would do stuff like that. Okay. So uh, reevaluate your music. Uh, look at expository preaching. Uh, throughout the church, you want to have apologetics. You want to have good doctrinal training. Uh, and you included in that, as you were describing it, in women's ministry as well. 
So let me ask you, uh, and we'll, we'll keep getting more specific here. What about uh, student ministry? What would you do, especially knowing what you know now and what you're seeing about what's coming down the pike? What would you do with student ministry? Well, I mean, I'm no expert at this stuff, so this is just you know one one person's musing here. But um, hey, but you have a couple of kids who uh, <laughs> either they're tweeners or they're about to be's, right? Yes, I've got a tweener, and then uh, well, an almost tweener too. Yeah, so they're they're getting there. So there's something in me as a mom that just loves that. For example, my daughter loves to go to her little small group because she's with her friends on Wednesday night. Um, there's something in me that loves that and would love to see that continue. At the same time, though, I think if we look through church history, you don't see early in the church there being everything broken up. You know, this is probably unpopular to say these days, but even broken up to like women's ministry and men's ministry, youth ministry, kids ministry. Um, that's a modern invention. You don't actually see that going back. And so back uh, in the, you know, the early days, especially before now, of course, you know, second century and on with more people coming, that's when you had to start using things like pews. And so it doesn't mean that all that's bad. But when people were meeting in homes, the children, everybody learned together. They were all together. And I think there's something extremely valuable that we miss out on today in that type of model because you have the the older people have to come down a little a level to explain it to the kids the kids have to come up a level because there's adults in the room and then there's also just this sense of family that's what it's supposed to be is everybody appreciating the multi-generational thing that christianity is so um you know i don't know what the by, by the way do you know that uh lots of studies have been done again as a lead pastor and uh, you know, I've had over the years uh, multiple uh, student ministers. Uh, the um, research is really clear on this, Elisa. The best student ministry is intergenerational mm -hmm. ministry. It's where you have a lot of adults actively engaged regularly with uh, with the junior high and high school kids. Wow, yeah. I think you're onto something there. Anyway, That's keep going. Cool. Well, yeah, so I, you know, I, I don't know if it means that Sunday mornings, everybody's together and they don't go to separate classes and then maybe midweek there can be some separation, but I, I think that might be, I know that during COVID, you know, of course, when our church began to meet again, um, they weren't doing children's ministry. So the kids had to come in the main service and you know what? We loved it. We loved having our kids in with us during worship and during the message. And there's so much value in that. And so, um, yeah, just just some thoughts that I think might might help. Okay. I'm, I'm going to keep pressing you here. So what about the content with junior high and high school kids? Oh, content. You have to you have to do systematic theology and apologetics with kids. You have to. And you can. That's the thing. I think so many people, you know, one of my biggest gripes about student ministry is that I think a lot of student ministers highly underestimate what their kids can handle and learn. Um, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've gone to do, uh, you know, a six-week series with a, a youth group, let's say, and I start what I'll do the first time because I know they're probably not going to care. If I just come in and say, hey, let me tell you guys what the cosmological argument for the existence of God is, they're going to tune out, right? But if I come in that first time and I pretend to be an atheist and I completely destroy 
every objection they try to bring against my atheism, yeah, yeah. What, what I see happen every single time, Bobby, every single time, the kids get excited, they, they get fired up, they get mad, and they come back the next week and they bring their friends. And I've, I've seen the, the size of the audience double among high schoolers when I've done that and because then they want to learn. Um, I have friends who lead mission trips with high schoolers. They take them to secular college campuses to talk to atheists on campus and with training, of course, first. They take them to uh, Utah to talk to Mormons and they'll tell you these kids can handle a lot of theology and they get excited when they get to put it into practice in the real world. And so, man, if we're not doing that, we're just going to continue to see the statistics either stay the same or get worse yeah. as far as kids leaving the church after high school. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at discipleship.org. It's our discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So uh, you think that apologetics is important for junior high and high school, along with systematic theology? I do. And and just to clarify, like I what I'm not saying though is that you have to go in and say, okay, kids, we're gonna do an apologetics class now. No, the youth pastors need to be trained in it so that when they're teaching, they can integrate apologetics into their Bible teaching. You can do that so easily. You can be going through a passage and then say, Hey guys, by the way, a lot of people when they read this, they think that this makes God morally evil. Let's talk about that. What do you guys think? Then you can bring some apologetics in without saying like, now I'm going to give you the apology. You know, you can just yeah. do it in a natural way to say, look, I'm going to show you this quote that this atheist wrote about this verse we're talking about today. What do you guys think about this? How would you answer this? Yeah, That's yeah. the kind of stuff where you can engage kids in a way and they and they can handle so much more than we think they can. That's so good. You know, um, I don't want this to be about what we're doing in my home church because this is about the ministry of discipleship.org. But we recently um, <clears throat> have been a part of creating a systematic theology and creating a um, homeschool tutorial. Well, it's not a homeschool tutorial. It's between a Christian school and a, a homeschool type thing. And uh, it's, it's a tutorial where they meet a couple of days a week. But we're having all the junior high and high school kids work through the systematic theology over a two-year period. They work through the whole thing. Uh, as they're in discipling groups at lunch every day. And I, I just, I am totally in sync with what you're saying. We're, we're going to keep getting more specific here. Talk to me about family discipleship. What would you encourage parents to do in the home? And let's let's keep our focus on from birth 
to sixth grade for now. So good. And this is something, Bobby, that I have been thinking about with extra vigor over the last few years, I would say, is actively discipling my kids every day. And all I can do is tell you what what I think works and what I think is a good way to do it. And what it is, is it has to be holistic. It has to be 24-7. And that doesn't mean you're doing 24-7 Bible studies. But what it means is you're constantly tuned in to where your kids are at. Don't let something go by that they say without engaging with it if, if it needs to be engaged with. And what I mean by that is there are times, like our family, we try to we try to sit down every night and we do devotions together as a family. Either we'll read part of some scripture or... Uh, we'll take a sermon that uh, from a, a you know one of the Bible teachers we like, and we'll listen to ten minutes of it a night. And you know, it might take us five nights to get through it, but we'll we'll listen to it and we'll talk about it. Um, but it, what I mean by holistic is you have to do that active sort of intentional stuff by sitting down with your yeah. kids to do that. But if that you that can't be all you do, you have to engage them all throughout the day. So what I try to do is. Um, I think from birth to, you know, through kindergarten, preschool, what you basically have to do is create an environment where your kids feel like you want them to ask their questions. It can be so tempting in that two-year-old phase where everything's why, 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 to just be like, because I said so. But what a great opportunity to start training your kids to live in an environment of question asking, where you can say, wow, what a smart question. What a good question. And you don't even have to give answers necessarily at that age. Just engage them with questions. They want to come with you to you with their questions so that they know like, oh gosh, asking mom and dad questions is a very warm and positive experience, right? Reading scripture is a warm and positive experience. It's not a punishment. It's like, this is the environment we're creating. And then as they get a little older, when my kids were a little bit, uh, you know, maybe in second, third kind of grade, I started to ask them, like, what's your biggest question about God? And my daughter would ask these really astute and terrifying questions about God. And what I always try to do is, again, continue that environment. Like, wow, you're really a wise person that you're asking such a good question. And even if you don't know the answer, I don't know, but let's figure it out together. I also think, like, don't make the answers too long because you want them to keep coming to you and they know that you'll get in and get out, but it's a constant engagement. My kids are not allowed to watch anything on the screen that we don't discuss after. Now, I'm pretty liberal in what I'll let them watch. Watch. I, I, of course, there is an appropriate protection that we have for kids. You're not going to throw them out in the middle of the ocean before they can swim. But you know, I'll let them watch the Disney movies. We'll we'll watch, you know, things that I know have some ideas in there that are going to be anti-Christian. But we're going to talk about those ideas. We're going to identify the worldview that's going on in the movie so that the kids are trained to do that just by nature. They're not they like my. my I'll give you a great example. We were in a a store and the shirt that my daughter thought was so cute said something like, um, oh, it was some one of those follow your heart or, you know, just one of those slogans that everybody and she goes, mom, I know this shirt is a lie, but it's really cute. And I want to wear it. (laughs) I mean, just the fact that she was engaged to like think about like, I disagree with this statement, but it's really cute. And so, you know, I let her get the shirt and we call it the lie shirt. And it's funny. It's, a, you know, it's just so trying not to be legalistic, but it's just an active engagement all the time. And you can tell I'm excited about that topic. I, no, I, no, that's I, really good. What you're describing is Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, uh, often called the Shema 
which yes. uh, I refer to it as the Great Commission before the Great Commission. So it begins by, and I know you know this, but just for everybody watching, it begins with the statement, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Moses says, these commandments that I teach you today, impress them on your children, talk about them when you are at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, on your foreheads, and the door frames of your houses. That's exactly what you're describing uh, right there. It's intentional, relational disciple making. Yes. You. Now, I want to ask you about this. Um, So in April of this year, I was in Austin, and we were meeting with a group of church planters, pretty, pretty, uh, you know, important in the sense of influential church planting group. And I got to spend some time with a guy named Tim Hawk. So Tim Hawk is the senior pastor of uh, a church uh, just outside Austin. Uh, it's a huge church of like 6,500 uh, Hill Country Bible Church. And he's one of the good guys. Like if you had a list of uh, respected church leaders throughout North America and people uh, had the opportunity who knew Tim, his name would be on it. Like he's super respected. And he and I sat down to talk, and it was one of these altering conversations for me personally. And here's why it was. He said that over the last year and a half under COVID, that they had made a decision to entirely revamp their children's ministry and student ministry in this huge church. And he said they they came to the conclusion that Everything was going to rise or fall on discipling the children of the families in the church so that their children could faithfully follow Jesus in the persecution that Mm. they believe is coming because of what's happening in our culture. And it was like, whoa, that was that was Tim Hawk said that. And then we entered into this. Okay, what's it going to take to really disciple families into that place? Mm. And I just want to punctuate what you're saying mm. because it, it's it's almost like if I could give churches throughout the country one mandate right now, as you think of 10, 15, 20 years from now, that would be the mandate. Mm. How are we going to raise up faithful disciples of Jesus in our families? And how do we disciple dads and moms, but especially dads, to make sure that that's happening? Mm. Well, there's a lot in that question. I think um, the first thought that comes to my mind just has to do with kids as far as getting kids ready for that persecution. Um, We have got to abandon, and and I, I say this with so much grace, because I think that in the 80s and 90s, that prosperity gospel got so driven in deep, even in in streams of Christianity that wouldn't be typically falling for that it just got in and we are still getting that cancer out of the evangelical church i think and and i think so so what makes me think about that we have got to abandon any sense of the prosperity gospel with our kids we we have to stop teaching them that god is and 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 we may be doing this unintentionally by the way but we have to stop teaching them that God is some kind of magic vending machine with prayer, that you only pray to get stuff from God. 
We have got to stop teaching them that. We have to teach them how to suffer. We have to teach them the things Jesus actually promised, which is that in this world, you're going to have trouble, but be a good cheer. He's overcome the world. He gives you peace. But but he you are going to have suffering. If you are a Christian, you will be persecuted. You will suffer. Yeah. And and just training them. Like he's not gonna magically solve all your problems when you pray. And I think that it's so tempting for parents to say, Oh, all right, let's, you know, you've lost your toy, let's pray, we'll find it, let's do this. And and I think we have to like what I've um, you know, I I'll use the example of the Christians in Afghanistan. When my daughter in particular was catching wind of what was going on uh, with with Christians that were left in Afghanistan now being hunted by the ta- the Taliban, and I, you know, when we prayed for them, I was very careful how I prayed for them. I did not pray that God would deliver all of them out of their circumstance. I did say, if it would be your will to deliver any out of that circumstance, would you do that? But Lord, our main prayer is that they will be faithful to you unto death, that your Holy Spirit will be so near to them in a way that we don't even know how to ask for because you do. Uh, we we pray that their lives would glorify you, that salvations would occur through them, that you would give them strength. Uh, that's the kind of things we were praying, but I wasn't praying that God would miraculously pluck them all out of that situation. And so I think being very intentional about how we talk to kids about things like suffering, and really that's something we can expect. And um, and, and so that would be the one thing regarding parents and particularly dads. I don't know. I, I You know, I don't know what it's good. I, I think that you can only give what you already have. Yeah. And so I would just love to see moms and dads become, I think there's been a whole generation of Christians that, and and you'll hear this in a lot of the stories of people who are walking away from the faith, where their parents were kind of Sunday Christians, they they believed in Jesus, they had Bibles around the house, but the, the kids didn't see any of that throughout the week, and then they go to church on Sunday, and these kids grew up in church, but they never saw it really lived out. And in a, in a deep way. And so I think that's the challenge for parents. You can't give what you don't have. Yeah. And as we know, kids learn more by what you embody than what you say. You have to embody it yourself. Yeah, Mark Twain said it really well. He said that children have never been very good at listening to their parents, but they never fail to imitate them. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of truth in that. So um, I think, and I, I just want to add this, because I've spent a lot of time um, my son and I wrote a book years ago on discipling in the home. And I, I think that the church has church leaders. And by that, I mean, that includes me. Our top job with parents is to disciple the parents to disciple their kids. Because if the parents don't know how to disciple their kids, they're not going to do it. And so churches have to prioritize. I think Tim Hawk was right. Uh, discipling parents so that they're actively discipling their kids. So let's switch, if we can, just a little bit to the pursuit of why the mind is so important in disciple making. So uh, let me just say this as kind of a common refrain in disciple making circles. We often emphasize Jesus' method of disciple-making as the best, and that that's going to involve four key things. We say the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God, and then the mission of God. 
Um, and so we often say that it's very easy for church leaders to get caught up in strategy. Like what's the best way to do discipling groups? What's the best way to do small groups? What's the best way to do missional communities? And again, the pragmatics are important because you can't avoid them. But what I'd like to talk about is the lack of focus that we started with on the discipleship of the mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elisa, we talked uh, beforehand. I, When I texted you, I brought up a passage. And I'm going to go ahead and put it up on the screen. And uh, it's taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I've highlighted it here. And Paul describes his ministry. And uh, I, I just want to read this and then get your reaction to it. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and they have a lot of worldly ideas in the church in Corinth. Uh, And Paul is put down in this section of 2 Corinthians because he's not that impressive as a person. And uh, he comes back and, you know, he says, okay, let's let's get right down to brass tacks. And here's what he says in verse 3. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Okay, so this is spiritual warfare. Then he says this, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So don't be thinking back then of, uh, you know, spears and swords and catapults. We don't fight that way. Verse four, the weapons we fight with, I've already read that. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they, our weapons, have divine power to demolish strongholds. So the background here is the idea of spiritual strongholds or spiritual bindings in the mind. Then he says this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We could literally argue that the mind described here, especially in the things that you believe, is the primary context of faithful disciple making. Now, it wouldn't be the only one, But it's hard to argue there's anything more important than the discipleship of the mind. Mm. Jump in, Elisa. Well, this is such a powerful verse that, you know, I think in some streams of Christianity, we can think that when we think about spiritual warfare, like the first thing that comes to people's mind is some sort of like exorcisms or or something like that. But when we talk about some of these verses that have to do with actual fighting with because, you know, that's something also we mentioned progressive Christianity, they don't like the mili- military language, but it's in the Bible. If you're a Christian, yeah. you can't get away from it. It's all over the, the uh, soldier language, military language, warfare language. It's all around. We are at war. Um, and, you know, of course, the Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but uh, against uh, principalities and powers. And what's really interesting, though, is if you look at all of those, the verses that have to do with spiritual warfare, they all have to do, if you really look at it, with ideas, they have to do with um, things we think with our minds. Yes. Um, It's believing wrong ideas about things. And so when this uh, says here in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we demolish arguments now, notice arguments. We demolish arguments. That's like yeah. what people are saying, skeptical claims that are coming against Christianity in many cases. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
And this is like, I, it's clear as day to me that Christians, part of spiritual warfare, I used to give a talk about apologetics, kind of giving an apologetic for apologetic. And I argue, uh, of course, I, I got this. There's a great uh, South African uh, theologian philosopher named Simon Brace who who does, I got this from him. Um, just, you know, I don't want anyone to think I take credit for this, but that the true nature of spiritual warfare has to do with the battle of for ideas in the mind. And yes. so, Knowledge is an important part. So studying, learning things, uh, in, increasing your knowledge about God is part of doing spiritual warfare. And there, if you, we look at so many of these verses in the Bible that have to do with knowledge, just, just listen to some of these. Proverbs 15, 4 says that the discerning heart acquires knowledge, gets knowledge. Study. You have to study. You have to read. You have to learn. And you know, maybe you're not a reader, so you can listen to audiobooks or lectures. There's not, you know, one size fits all with that, but you're acquiring knowledge. Uh, Proverbs 129 warns of this the destruction that follows a hatred of knowledge, like actually can bring dis- destruction. Proverbs 122 says that fools hate knowledge. Proverbs 1:5, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, but a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. A wise man will increase in learning. That's so powerful. And then, of course, in Hosea 4, we hear about God's people perishing for lack of knowledge regarding the law. Uh, 2 Peter 2.1 tells us to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. In fact, in Philippians 1.9, Paul was praying that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. This, this all has to do with the life of the mind and the intellect. Oh, that's so good. So the only way to take this uh, for parents, for churches, for individuals, is we have to engage in the questions and the beliefs of the mind. Now, as we're thinking about our current cultural moment, Elisa, if you were to try to help people who are in danger of deconstructing or who are in the process of deconstructing, what are some key things in a church context or if I'm discipling somebody, what are some key things that I can do to um, make a difference right now? Mm-hmm. In other words, preparing them if they're going to be tempted to deconstruct or if they're already deconstructing. What, what are some key things? Okay, so this, I think, and this is something I've been thinking about so much lately because everybody's talking about deconstruction right now and everybody's confused about it. So if somebody is talking about deconstruction, the first thing you must do is ask them what that means to them. What do they yeah. mean when they see deconstructing? Because I'm starting to see more and more videos and articles from solid Christians encouraging people to deconstruct because they're operating under the definition of deconstruction that it's just really more like doubt. You're going to go through and kind of figure out if everything you believe is true and you might take things apart and say, do I believe that? Okay, yeah, I'll put that back. That is not what the deconstruction movement means when they're talking about deconstruction. So I'll just be honest. I have friends who have done some of this content and I cringe because I'm like, I know what you're saying, but when people are talking about deconstruction, they're not talking about that. This is an entirely different animal that's sort of built upon the shoulders of postmodernism. This is not something Christians need to do. Yes, doubt, 
Absolutely. Healthy doubt, honest doubt, seeking truth. Take apart everything you believe and make sure it's true. Absolutely. But deconstruction, if you search the deconstruction hashtag on Instagram, that's not what they're doing. So before you jump into that, so are you, there's an expression in apologetic circles that uh, throughout the centuries has been popular, and that is the expression faith seeking understanding. It's like in the Gospel of Mark, uh, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, that every Christian at some level is going to go through that with certain beliefs they're adopting, that they find out that are really not true. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so, you know, it's not like they're abandoning Jesus, but they're maturing in their understanding and belief systems. Yes. So the idea there is faith, seeking understanding, and, and I'll, I'll just... Um, offer a word of encouragement, I think it's really God-honoring that Mm -hmm. we're saying, God, I only want to believe what's right. Help me to work through this so that my mind can be wholly devoted to you. So anyway, talk to us, uh, keep talking to us about the more toxic form. Yeah, so so what most people, at least, because it is a movement, there's a movement of deconstruction. It's evangelistic in nature. It's they're they're wanting to pull people into deconstruction, and so the tox, the more toxic or unhealthy version of deconstruction is when uh, someone is angry at the church, or they they have in some way made themselves their authority for truth uh, over the Bible, even over empirical evidence. There's there's sort of a hatred of apologetics in the deconstruction movement. There's like this disdain for it because they don't, um, this whole idea of objective truth being able to be something that's known by everyone that you would claim to know what's actually true about God is arrogant. We, you know, that's not a part of what they're doing. So really what I see happen so often in the deconstructive movement is that people are um, responding to something that they have already deemed to be wrong. And usually it's sexuality. So there's some undercurrent of, hey, I'm rejecting the biblical sexual ethic, and so I'm going to work my worldview around that. And then they walk away from their faith or they walk away from a historically you know, authentic Christian faith. Um, so, so yeah, it's really important what we mean when we use that word because I think it's scary to tell a Christian like, hey, you should deconstruct because you might just be talking about growing and making sure everything you believe is true. But if they go start looking up, I mean, there's people give classes to help you deconstruct and they're going to absolutely shred your faith and they're going to encourage you to walk away from it. So um, we need to be really careful about that. But just as far as like how to help somebody going through that, I think that um, diagnosis of the reason why is a huge, like you can't do, don't start answering objections or the things they're saying until you figure out why they're saying those things. Uh, Because you could be dealing with somebody who's been through a horrific experience of church abuse, maybe, uh, you know, an abuse of power from a pastor or a narcissistic type leader, and they've been in this toxic system and they just want out and they might not actually have a problem with the gospel. They may not realize that at the moment, but just sitting with them, acknowledging what has happened to them, um, loving them, comforting them, showing compassion, you know, that's the first thing you want to do with somebody like that. And then as things come out, maybe you can help guide the conversation uh, to show how the gospel is actually the cure for that. Jesus had a lot to say, actually, about abusive leaders um, and, and things like that. So uh, diagnosing what the problem is, if it's like sexual 
sexuality issue. If if someone's like, well, I don't understand why I can't just love my gay friends. All they need, they need some knots untied there. Of course you can love your gay friends. What, you know, if you've been told you can't love gay people, then that's not Christianity. Of course, yeah, yeah. Jesus loves gay people. Um, he loves everyone. He invites everyone into relationship with him and, and everyone's invited to repent and turn from their sin, whatever that sin may be. But it doesn't mean you can't love people. And so just maybe, maybe some knots need to get untied. But then there are cases where I really think the deconstruction is really more of seeking justification for the unbelief that's already there and in that case there's probably not a lot you can do so you kind of have to diagnose where someone's at in their journey and Bobby this is something that you've done so well I had you and Dave Stovall on my podcast to talk about how you sort of discipled him back from deconstruction so I thought that was such a helpful conversation because so many people are just I get emails from parents going my, my kids are deconstructing I don't know what to do about it so um, you know I would definitely recommend people tune into that conversation because I think you and Dave had a lot of really great insights into that very specific question well that's kind you're not supposed to turn that thing on me though <laughs> doing you um, well you've actually accomplished I mean that's the thing like you've succeeded at walking somebody through that so I feel like you're way more of an expert at it well, here's the thing that um, I'm wrestling with in my mind. Uh, if I could uh, just be transparent back with you. Like, I live in a world where I'm still um, leading a church, and we deal every week with sort of the, the people come to church with their expectations and their DNA, and the idea of the church being a place that really feeds the mind and that really deals with apologetics and systematic theology and, and this kind of stuff, I know as I watch over time that you have to deal with that because of what we looked at in terms of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. How people think is going to determine where they end up. And yet there's, there's, a, there's a real resistance to it. So we're in a phase right now where we are actually emphasizing, like for this next month in, in where, you know, the church that I'm at, Harpeth Christian Church, just outside of uh, Nashville, we're going through a series on the Word of God. On Sunday nights, I intentionally um, sought out Craig Evans. And uh, he, like in my mind, if you put one person who would be the top guy on archaeology uh, for the life of Jesus, I'm, I'm focused on the life of Jesus because I think that's the best apologetic you start there. So archaeology and historicity of Jesus, and then the uh, manuscript evidence, who like really knows the manuscript evidence, if you roll that up into one person, the top guy, it would be Craig Evans. So I reached out, prayed about it, and I reached out to him, and uh, we're going to do these uh, Sunday night webinars. But I feel sometimes like I'm trying to get people to address stuff that they don't want to address, and yet I know if they don't, they're just setting themselves up for all kinds of difficulties. So I guess that's more of a statement than a question, but maybe um, give me some reflections. Yeah, I, you know, the, I get defensive for, for, I call them my scholars, the people I learned from, you know, when I was uh, going through my own real serious crisis of faith and trying to rebuild any semblance of faith. And I'm, you know, it, it, I don't know what it is, but it seems like in a lot of evangelical circles, there's just like this allergy to intellectualism. 
just this yeah. allergy to scholarship and like, oh, you're bringing a scholar, ah, oh, you know, and I want to, and I think it's because we've been so trained to have that emotional experience and the scholar's not going to give you that. Now they give me that because I've never had that in my life. I So when I hear people like, you know, like a Craig Evans debate with somebody about some specific point on, you know, life of Jesus or the words of Jesus in the gospel of John or something, I get so excited because all of that stuff, I, I have an emotional experience when I listen to that. But, um, but you know, I think that um, I, we just have a lot of work to do to reverse the narrative as far as intellectualism. Um, because, you know, I, I've even, I still see people post things on Facebook like, oh, you know, you don't need a scholar to tell you this and that. And, you know, it's true. I mean, you can come to Christ without ever listening to a scholar. But the reason you have the Bible that you have is because scholars yeah. translated that Bible. Scholars gathered the manuscript evidence to make sure that it's accurate for you. I mean, you, you're standing on the backs of giants while insulting them. And so I get really defensive for the scholars because, you know, it's like they're sort of the unsung heroes of, of the whole deal. But uh, yeah, good for you for doing that. Well, uh, I just wanted to highlight it because I think that the truth of the matter is to really disciple people, to honor God, and really to love people well, we've got to disciple their minds. And as we've seen, you know, in the time we've had together, uh, getting to the mind is so crucial. Well, our time has just flown by, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Elisa, for that. Uh, let me just uh, give you an opportunity to share any last word you'd like to share. By the way, we're super looking forward to having you November 4th and 5th uh, in Nashville at Brentwood Baptist Church. Uh, Elisa will be one of our main stage speakers and uh, just super grateful for your partnership with discipleship.org. But let me give it back to you as we close, just for any final words that you'd like to share with people. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, Bobby. That's going to be fun. And uh, man, just final words. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think just sort of the 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 ideas that are concretizing through this, is that a word, concretizing? Yeah, we can make it a word. We'll make it a word. Um, is is just that, you know, don't be afraid to, to study. Don't be afraid to dig deep. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about knowledge. The Bible has a lot to say. In fact, in 1 Peter 3.15, that's the, the big verse apologists always use, where it says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Um, but what's interesting about that verse, a lot of people don't realize, is that the context within which Peter wrote that was he was writing that to persecuted Christians. And that word he says to give a reason, that's the Greek word apologia. And that's where we get our word apologetics. It's, it doesn't mean tell people your testimony. It doesn't mean tell them how Jesus changed your life. It means to give an intellectual defense for what you believe, why you believe that's true. And that's what he told to persecuted Christians. This was this was like, that's pretty, I think, impactful. So, so this is something I think we can all do, and it's very exciting, I think. So I, I hope people will, maybe maybe this will inspire somebody to, to just grab a, a just a basic apologetics book and, and dig in and start. You know, you've got to start somewhere. Oh, that's great. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Bobby.
awesome episode from Bobby and Elisa. I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Hey, Elisa is actually coming to our Nashville Disciple Making Forum, which is happening November 4th and 5th in Nashville, Tennessee. And I've got a promo for you if you missed it at the beginning of this episode. If you enter podcast, all lowercase, in the promo code, when you're buying your tickets from discipleship.org, you'll get your ticket for 50% off. All right, at the beginning of this episode, I told you that I would let you know where you could find an episode to find out more about my story. It's actually on the Elisa Childers podcast. Elisa brought me and Bobby on because Bobby discipled me and helped lead me back to surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus and returning to a high view of Scripture. Two things that I kind of lost when I was going through my trip through progressive Christianity. So if you go to the Elisa Childers podcast, episode 108, you can listen to that story about what happened to me, what went on in my spiritual journey, and also how Bobby discipled me in the truth and brought me back to historic Christianity. It's really cool. Go check it out. Episode 108. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode next week.